Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is David Snoke, and I'm going to be bringing the word to us tonight. Uh, so uh, I uh, chose the three catechism questions that we already read on page three. One of them goes back to last week, but all of them, you can see, are all about God, right? So the, you could say uh, the, the main character of the Bible is God. A lot of times, uh, you know, people read through all the stories and you see all the different things going on in the Bible. And it's very interesting when we get caught up on that. But if you take a step back and say, what is it really all about? Uh, it's all about God himself. Uh, it's really about him showing to us his interactions uh, with people and how, what his nature is, what he's like. Uh, and so, really, I, the, the sermon tonight is fairly straightforward, fairly simple. It's just to lift up our eyes to just really focus in on God as the one who it's all about. Uh, and that's really, I would say, not our normal route in our culture. Uh, a lot of people uh, think of religion as sort of a self-help program, where this is something that's going to make me a better person, it's going to make me uh, more spiritual, it's going to make me feel better about myself. Uh, or they might uh, feel like this is... Um, uh, a really great fellowship. It's a really great community that I come to. I feel like I belong. I feel like I have a part and so on. And all of those, both of those are things that sort of come on the side with Christianity. But the Bible is really not primarily about your self-help and not even about your community. It's really about God. Uh, it's about him being the center. And as we focus on him, as he starts to become the center of our lives, then some of these other things fall into place. Uh, our sense of community and identity and our, and our mental health and so on. Uh, but uh, it's really, you could say, it's really just about God. I'm gonna, that's where I'm going to land uh, in this entire sermon. So the sermon text that I picked is from Isaiah chapter 40. And I'm not going to really refer to the catechism questions directly, uh, but this passage in Isaiah 40 uh, really focuses in on who are we talking about here when we talk about God. So uh, we'll read the uh, passage here, uh, and as is our uh, pattern, uh, when I'm done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and the response is, thanks be to God. So hear the word of God from Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and hills in balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or to what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? 
Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, just pray that you'd be with me, uh, a sinner, uh, bringing forth your perfect word. And Father, uh, it's only through your Holy Spirit uh, that um, people can be uh, blessed by your word. And Father, just pray that you would guide me and guide our hearts as we listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to talk uh, about this from a couple different perspectives. Um, the first I'm going to talk to really to the unbeliever. Uh, and for those of us who are believers, this will still be productive because we all live in a world that's constantly bombarding us with messages uh, from people who don't believe in God. Uh, and uh, we interact with people, we mull over these things and so on, uh, and we really think about uh, why should I believe in God all the time. And so really I just want to address one question which is often something that comes up in what you might call apologetics arguments or uh, arguments uh, with people who just uh, don't believe in God. In general, you'll often hear people start out an argument like the following. I just can't believe in a God who would, and then fill in the blank, X. Right? Have you heard that uh, kind of argument? Um, well, I want to unpack that a little bit. Because I think a lot of times our response as Christians is, oh, no way, he's not so bad. Uh, let me sort of explain, you know, yes, uh, you know, there is this thing that's kind of hard about God, but there's also this good thing about God, so don't, uh, don't you know, get hung up on that. <clears throat> or we might say, um, what you're saying is not really what God is like, uh, and, uh, and so let me explain to you why he's not like that. And all of those might have their place, but what I really want to start out with is just getting at the premise of that question. I just can't believe in a God who would be like such and such. The bottom line as we look at a passage like this is God doesn't consult you about what he's like. It's not up to you to define how God should be. Uh, we don't, we're not here making up God. Uh, we live in a universe that God created, and he is what he is, whether we like it or not. And so it might be that as we read through the Bible, we end up liking everything that we see there, but it might also be that we don't. Uh, and it doesn't matter because God doesn't take a vote. He doesn't ask for our opinion about what he's like. He is the one who is eternal from all eternity, as we read in the Confessions, uh, and he is what he is. Uh, and I think about it in analogy, you know, when we are all born uh, as babies and we've been seeing our grandkids growing up, it's like a process of discovery, right? Every, every day is a new thing. You know, what is this smell? What is this thing that I'm feeling? And so on. And we all go through the world kind of trying to figure out what's out there. 
And your job as a baby is not to make the world in your own image, to make the world what you want it to be. Your job is to figure out what really is out there. Uh, and uh, I think about that in terms of science, right? Science, you could say, is just a little bit more like what a baby is doing. It's just trying to figure out what's really out there. Uh, it's just trying to figure out how things work. Imagine somebody starting in on a physics project and saying, I just can't believe in something like gravity because it kills too many people. You know, when they fall off of cliffs, uh, gravity is really terrible. And so I just can't believe in a thing like gravity, so uh, I, I can't go there. It'd be silly, right? It'd be ridiculous. I mean, it doesn't matter what you think. Gravity is whether you like it or not. Uh, and if you jump off a cliff, you will fall whether you like it or not. Uh, it's just the way the world is. Our job is to find out what's real, not to create the world in our own image. Uh, and in the same way, when we're trying to discover spiritual realities, uh, the spiritual realities uh, are not something that we create. They're things that are, that we're trying to find out. What is the reality? What is the truth? Uh, now, the Bible has a word for constructing a God in our own image, for making a God the way we want him to be. And that word is idolatry. Uh, so in the passage that we have in front of us, uh, in verse 18 there, you see that he's talking almost in a mocking way, pretty much in a mocking way, uh, saying, to whom would you liken God then? Uh, how would, what would you compare him to? <clears throat> and a craftsman builds it with gold, or if he's not rich enough, he builds it with wood, uh, and so on and so forth. And we can look back and we can say, how silly of people in ancient days to make a, you know, a statue and to think that that was really God. But fundamentally, what they're doing is they're making up in their own mind what they think God would be like and then making that into like a physical image. Uh, well, a lot of times we don't make physical images. Some people still do. Uh, but really, it's the same thing biblically when I say, well, I'm going to dream up what I think God should be like and then I'm going to believe in that God. Right? That's idolatry. That's what it's called uh, scripturally. It's when I say, I'm going to make God in my image to be what I like. And so um, I don't want there to be a God who punishes anybody so I'm not going to believe in a God who punishes anybody. Uh, I, uh, I want a God who gives me everything that I want, uh, like a very nice grandfather. Uh, well, that's the God I'm going to believe in. Uh, or I want a God who is going to jump when I say, uh, do a miracle for me, and he'll just do whatever I say. Uh, we don't get to do that, right? If you look at this passage here, the entire uh, tenor of this passage is that God is the one who stands above the heavens and he is the one who created all of creation. We are beings inside of his creation uh, and we are to understand what he's like based on reality, not based on what our mental image of what we would like him to be. So given all of that, how do we learn about God? How do we know about God? Well, there's essentially two ways uh, that we can learn about him. One is through the creation. Uh, and we sang that uh, nice song about uh, all the things that God has made. Um, God is revealed to us in creation. And we see this in a couple different ways, actually. We see, on the one hand, the exquisite, you might say, artistic nature of God, right? You see amazing butterflies or birds or sunsets uh, or the starry night, which is referred to in this passage here. It might not be obvious to you in verse 25 there or 26, 
Uh, he says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. What are the these? Those are the stars that he's talking about. Uh, and he's saying he brings out their host, the host of the stars by number, and gives each star a name. So you can say God is revealed in that, in that artistic nature. We see something about his creative uh, ability. And uh, in the Q&A afterwards, you could get me started on talking about arguments from design and so on and all the wonderful things that God has made. Uh, but you don't have to be a scientist to appreciate that kind of thing, right? You just go to the Grand Canyon or, or see a sunset or look at a starry night. Like, you, you just see uh, how amazing God is. The other thing we see in nature that we maybe don't like is things that are scary and dangerous, right? Like sharks. And sometimes there are pe- people who say, like, I couldn't believe in a God who would make sharks. <clears throat> I couldn't believe in a God who would make tapeworms. And this has been like little arguments made by philosophers over the, uh, over the centuries. Um, and again, we don't get a vote on, on that. God does what he does. But it tells us something about God, which is that he is dangerous. And that's a, a, something you see in this entire passage. Right? You see that he is not uh, someone to be trifled with. Uh, he is one who sets up princes, as it says uh, in verse 23, and casts them down. Uh, and, uh, and God reserves the right to do that. He reserves the right to judge in the final judgment, and he reserves the right to even to bring uh, temporal things in this world. Uh, and so we see that God is also a God of power. Uh, he's not just a God of making nice things. If you remember in question four, in the Westminster Confession, it said, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, and power, and holiness. And so we see God uh, in, this, uh, in nature as well. Uh, but the other way that we learn about who God is, is through the Bible, uh, through the words of the prophets and the apostles. And that was in the uh, first question we read tonight, about what do the scriptures principally teach? They teach us about God. Essentially, you could say, and many philosophers have said this, uh, if God is really infinite and eternal and omniscient and all of these things, how could we ever know anything about him? How could we know his mind? He is beyond our understanding. And the answer is we can't unless he tells us something. We can't uh, put him under a microscope and analyze him and say, well, you know, we'll dissect him, see what he's made of, and so on. We are completely on the receiving end that he tells us about himself if he so chooses. And so that's what Christianity uh, would say the Bible is, is God's message uh, telling us about himself. And he doesn't tell us everything about himself, but he tells us certain things about himself that he wants us to know. Uh, Now, again, I'm going to move on uh, from talking uh, in an apologetic way, but Some people might say, well, how do I know the Bible is from God? And essentially, it's connected to the creation story by the miracles. Uh, The Bible is accredited by the prophets and apostles doing miracles, which eyewitnesses testified that they saw these miracles happening. And the greatest of these, of course, is the resurrection, uh, which Jesus gives uh, as the public miracle that is going to confirm uh, all of the things that he has said and done. Uh, And so... Uh, You think about it, the Bible uh, is a book, and yet it's connected to the story of creation because it's saying God is the Lord over creation. He can do miracles, and he can fiddle with it, and he doesn't have to be subject to it himself. He can change it in any way that he wants. And it's funny, sometimes I've talked to people 
who will read a, a, a miracle in the Bible and say, well, that one's too big. That one can't possibly be true. Like stopping the sun. Uh, you know, that's like a huge miracle. You think about what would be involved in stopping the sun in the sky. And you think about what does the Earth's rotation stop? Uh, and then the laws of inertia have to stop so we don't all go flying off the Earth and all these kind of things. Um, or walking on water or flying into the sky. And people are like, well, okay, I could believe in small miracles, but I couldn't believe in a big miracle like that. But the whole point is, if God is the one who created creation, he could do anything he wants. Uh, he, could, he could do anything. He can make uh, amazing things happen. And again, that's not an accident. It's not a side thing in the Bible. It's actually an important part of the Bible to say it's the same God of creation that you see out there in the Grand Canyon and in the stars. That's the God who is behind the Bible. Okay, well, I'm going to move on and uh, talk more specifically to Christians. So I talked about idolatry, and we often think of idolaters as those people out there who are making up God the way they want him to be. But uh, don't we as Christians do the same thing? Don't we get mad at God when he isn't the way we want him to be? Uh, when we want him to do something and he doesn't uh, give it to us? Um, you know, now, I know everybody in this room who's a Christian would probably agree and say, yes, we're not supposed to make uh, God jump through our hoops. We're supposed to do what he says. We're not supposed to make him be what we want him to be. Uh, but we find ourselves falling into this all the time, right? So um, suppose I say, well, you know, um, I'm not married and I want to be married. God, what's the problem? Uh, I'm failing at my career. Why aren't you doing something? God, it's for your purposes. I want to do this for you. So I want you to grant me these things because it'll be, I'll be able to serve you so much better if I have these things. Uh, and if you don't come through, then you're failing on your end of the bargain. Right? You, you hear how we're... We're basically bringing God down as someone we can bargain with. Uh, and everything in this passage speaks to you don't bargain with God. God says what he is and says what he does uh, and what he will do. Uh, and we listen and we respond. Um, the book of Job is a classic book about all of this. And um, many people love the book of Job. A lot of people struggle with it. Uh, just in a nutshell, Job is presented as a good man. Uh, not a perfectly sinless man, but a good man, uh, we're told. And God takes away everything that he has, takes away uh, his family, takes away his wealth, takes away even the respect of his friends. Uh, they start to accuse him of sin and so on. Uh, and in the book, uh, there's a lot of arguing back and forth. And God's, I mean, sorry, Job's argument is primarily not with his friends, but with God himself. He keeps turning from his friends and saying, enough with you, God, I'm going to talk to you directly. Uh, and he's angry with God, and he argues with God. Uh, and he, a lot of his argument is based on assuming that God has done this to punish him for his sin. And we know, the readers, that it isn't because of Job's sin. In the beginning of the book, it says uh, that Job is actually having all these things happen to him in order to be an example, like Christ, of a suffering righteous servant, of someone who is suffering righteously, uh, even though uh, his things are taken away from him. And so he's a type of Christ. But the interesting thing is that uh, God, uh, at the end of the book, never says this to Job. Job is as clueless at the end of the book as he is at the beginning as to why all these things happen to him. And what Job, uh, the book of Job uh, does at the end is we have uh, four or five chapters of God talking 
And God doesn't say, let me tell you why I did this, because uh, it's really not as bad as you think. I'm not mad at you. Actually, what he does is very much like this passage here that we read in front of us. And if you've read both, you probably heard in the passage tonight, it's like, wow, that sounds like the book of Job. Like, where were you when I created the stars? Where were you when I unleashed uh, you know, the oceans and uh, told them thus far you can come uh, no further? Uh, and so the same kind of language is being used here. Uh, and so at the end of the book of Job, Job comes to a point where he says, I completely am humbled. Uh, I, I realize now that I didn't know what I was talking about, and I completely humble myself before you. Uh, and um, I wonder how many of us think that that place where he ends is a really great virtuous place to be. Like, wow, Job is just really become a humble man, and humility is a virtue, and isn't that, isn't that really good? But actually, I could say, he actually only comes to his senses at the end, because if you believe that there really is a God who created the world, who sets up kings and throws them down, who can move continents, who can stop the sun, and so on, then his position at the end of, I am just going to shut up and listen to you, God, is completely sensible. It's not some virtuous uh, act. It's, it's actually seeing reality as it is for the first time. Uh, and how many of us as Christians sort of think that we're being really virtuous when we're being humble and saying, God, um, I will let you lead on this. Uh, I will defer to you, God, as if we were doing some great and good thing. When actually, it's the opposite. When we don't do that, we're being incredibly self-centered. We're telling an omniscient, infinite, eternal God what to do. Uh, and we're telling him that we know better uh, and that he should do what we say. Uh, that's unbelievably, if you think about it, self-centered. Uh, and the position of Job to say, God, your will be done and not my will be done, is perfectly sensible if you really believe in that God and not the God that you've made up uh, in your mind as your personal idol. Uh, it's, um, it's not wrong for us to want things. It's not wrong to say, God, I pray, I ask, please give me the following things. It's not wrong to want to work for those things, to say, I want to uh, try really hard to succeed at this uh, or that. But fundamentally, our position as Christians is to come before God humbly and to say, God, you are the one uh, who is above the heavens, stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and I'm not and I need to listen to your voice and be humble before you uh, and, and to uh, not try to dictate to you what to do. Okay, well, I'm going to finish up uh, my third point then is just a little bit of theology. Uh, in uh, theology books, uh, you will read about communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. Uh, basically, that refers to things that are unique to God that are totally different from us and then things that God is like us. Uh, and so I'm going to start with the incommunicable, which is where I've kind of been talking a lot tonight. And then I'll end up with the communicable attributes. So the incommunicable, notice how many times in this passage it says, what will you compare me with? I'm incomparable. I am the creator of the universe. There is no other. Uh, or it says, uh, uh, in the uh, end of the very last bit, it says, his understanding is unsearchable. And actually, I like the uh, New American Standard Bible uh, translate that as inscrutable, uh, which is just a great word, right? Just inscrutable. I just want to say that word. Uh, that there, even though God reveals many things to us, 
Uh, there is part of his understanding that we cannot know. So it will be, in heaven, it will be the case that God will tell us many things that we didn't know. And so we're left in the dark here on earth, as Job was, about many things. When we get to heaven, God will say, let me tell you, this is what was going on. But also, even in heaven, there will be things that God knows that we will never know, because we will never be omniscient. Uh, God knows everything, and God uh, will always have knowledge that is not shareable with us. Uh, And that's kind of mind-blowing, to think that there are some things that we will never know, that only God knows. Uh, He is unique uh, in that way. Verses 12 and 13 say that he doesn't consult anybody outside himself. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Who did he consult? He's talking about in creation. He didn't consult anybody outside himself. He did this entirely of himself. So you could call that an incommunicable attribute, that he is self-sufficient, has all knowledge uh, and all wisdom. Uh, And the other thing that's referred to uh, in the passage here, we see is he's the creator Uh, He creates out of nothing. He creates what's called uh, ex nihilo. Uh, He doesn't need some pre-existing stuff. And oftentimes we get caught up in that because we think that God is constrained by certain rules and he has to do things a certain way. Uh, But the uh, picture that we have is now just the opposite. He creates the rules. Uh, He creates the universe and all the things uh, that are in it. Now what do we do with these incommunicable attributes? Uh, He's also omnipotent, right? He can do anything we are not omnipotent. Um, I think Matt, uh, he may have, uh, Pastor Matt may have uh, quoted this from somebody else, but he often will say good theology leads to doxology. That when we understand who God is, it should lead us to worship. Uh, And the application of this part is simply to worship God as who he is, as the one who is uh, truly holy, who is uh, many things beyond our understanding and to fall down before him in adoration. Uh, and that is the application, to do what we're doing tonight, essentially, to, to give worship to him. The fascinating thing about scripture, though, is it's not all incommunicable. So I was saying before that, uh, you know, if God didn't reveal himself to us in scripture, we might just have no idea what he's like. Uh, but he comes and he says to us, I am like uh, this, and he tells us things about himself. And lots of the ways that he reveals himself are ways that are like us. And so if you've read very much of scripture, you'll read things like, and God wept, he was sad about this, or he was happy about this, or he was angry about this, that he has emotions, or he has, you could say, states that are equivalent to our emotions. He wants us to think of him like a person with emotions. Uh, He's not like a block. And this is where pictures like the Star Wars Force completely miss the boat, right? Because when you think of a force, You think of something completely impersonal, something unmoved that's just sort of like a machine. But that's not the picture that we have of God in Scripture, that he is like us in that he has emotions and he feels things. Uh, And in particular, he is loving and has relationships like we do. So that's another communicable aspect that we're like him in that way. And I want to bring you back to the beginning of this passage Uh, Right in the mix of this whole uh, part in which it's talking about, look at God, how he is raised up high and holy. It says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He's saying, I'm like something you know. Uh, I am like a shepherd. So there's part 
of God that's incommunicable that we cannot ever understand. But there's part of him he's saying is think of me like a loving shepherd taking care of a little lamb. And in some sense, that's the most mind-blowing thing. It's not really shouldn't be too surprising that the creator of the universe would be infinite in power and infinite in knowledge and have all these amazing attributes. In some sense, that's the easy part. The hard part is how that God could be loving and lead his people like a shepherd leading a lamb. Uh, Words we read in the call to confession. Uh, I just love how these are put right next to each other. I dwell, says God, in a high and holy place and with him who is contrite and of a lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Uh, That he's not only holy and other and incommunicable, that he also has relationship and love, uh, and he's happy to be with us. Uh, In in summary, I guess, to finish up, uh, we like the loving part, uh, and we try to sort of maybe ignore the holy and infinite and eternal part. Uh, But actually, the more we understand the holy and the infinite and eternal part, uh, the more then we're blown away when we realize that God is the one who loves me. It's not just you know, a figment of my imagination that loves me. It's the real God who created the universe. That is the God uh, who loves me. And that is uh, truly mind-blowing. Let's pray together.